We are moving our way through the fruit of the Spirit. And as we've said, this is a singular fruit with nine different descriptors. We looked last week at love. This week we're looking at joy. And you might know me and say, well, I'm not sure you're the most joyful person in the world. I say, well, the Lord is more committed to me than I am to him. Like he's working in me. And we said, as we've said on other parts before, like you don't know where I came from. Maybe I'm a lot more joyful than I was. Maybe you're a lot more joyful than you were. He's changing us by degrees, as we will see. But we have hope that he's moving us in a particular direction. And there is a sort of pressure, a good pressure in our life that's doing that. We have a large concrete slab in back of our house. It's maybe a 12 by 10 slab. I've estimated that it weighs roughly 6,000 pounds, about three tons. And over time, we have a, we have a silver maple tree in the back of our yard as well. And the roots of that silver maple tree have um, gotten under that slab and slowly lifted it up. So when it rains, that water came, comes back to the house and goes into the basement. So a couple years ago, we hired Indiana Foundation Specialists and they came out and pumped some foam into the ground. I'm sure it, you know, it's, but I don't know how environmentally friendly it was, but probably last for 10 trillion years, but it it raised that 6,000 pound slab up about three inches so the water would stop going in our basement. I don't want to just, I don't want to think again about how much money I spent to do that, but we had to have that done. All because this tree and the little roots going under there created this just constant pressure to lift up this slab that was like 6,000 pounds. There was just just constant pressure over years and years and years to lift up something that was very heavy and weighing it down. What we're looking at today is a sort of constant pressure in our life, a good pressure. A good pressure that G.K. Chesterton, the British essayist, famous writer, Christian apologist said, is the gigantic secret of the Christian life. Chesterton says on the last page of his book, Orthodoxy, which I'd highly recommend, the the great gigantic secret of the Christian life is joy. Joy. It's something sometimes, he says, the pagan world occasionally touches on, but gives up ever finally receiving. But in Christ, it is the gigantic secret of the Christian life. We have access to a good pressure called joy. And so we're going to look this morning at increasing that pressure a little bit in our life. But before we do that, I want to ask you a question just to reflect for a second. You don't have to answer it out loud, but just think to yourself, who is the most joyful person you know? Who is the most joyful person that you know? Get someone in mind, perhaps. One of the great promises of the gospel is that we have, in Christ, we have access to a joy that is more deeply rooted than any circumstance in our life. We have the potential and access to a joy that is more indestructible than all the destructive circumstances in our life, no matter how destructive they are. And let's admit, sometimes they are very destructive. But the joy to which we have access is actually indestructible. And here's why. I want to submit to you I know this is like a pastor trick, I'm sorry, that the most joyful person you know in your life, if you're a Christian, is Jesus Christ himself. 
Do you think of Jesus as a joyful person? As a happy person? Now, if you don't, maybe that's maybe you grew up with a family or a church like, Jesus is not happy where I came from. Okay, Uh, you're missing it. Yes, he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, completely true. And he is full of indestructible, inexpressible, indescribable joy. Same person. He was and is full of joy. And I want to contend today that Jesus, the happiest person ever, the most joyful person ever, is so full and overflowing and super abundant with joy that he actually intends to share that with his people. Uh, And I don't mean that Jesus sort of like in his life and there's something called joy out here and Jesus went out and got joy and brought it to himself and now we in our life with the inspiration of Jesus can go out and get this thing called joy and bring it to our life as well. That's not what I'm talking about as it's some sort of substance or virtue that floats out there that we can bring to ourselves with inspiration from Jesus. What I'm talking about, what the scripture is talking about is it's the actual joy of Jesus' own life that he reproduces, bears fruit through and shares with his people, that very joy. I think that's what we'll see in the scripture today. On the front of your insert under the fruit that says joy in red on the top is the passage we've been working from in Galatians 5, 23, where the apostle Paul writes this, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And today we are seeing that the Holy Spirit cultivates an indestructible joy in Jesus' people. And if you are in Christ, the gospel tells you that part of the work of the Spirit in your life is that he is about creating an indestructible joy in your life. Sometimes we're disconnected from it a little bit or a lot, but he's doing the work nonetheless. I want to start out by exploring something, though, that we began last week with. I didn't think we spent long enough time on it, so I want to dig into it a little bit. Just kind of asking the question, what's the mechanism the Spirit does this by, with in your life? How is joy cultivated? And this is going to be the same for every other aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. This is how it's actually cultivated in our life. And it's not by us trying harder. Right? There is effort involved, but that's not the mechanism the Spirit uses to increase joy in our life. Again, we're not talking about a generic virtue that anybody might have that's only discovered by comparing it to others. We're talking about something deeper, the specific character of Jesus, this ancient, eternal, enduring, multidimensional character produced in us. Joy. Now, we'll start by saying that we live in a culture that doesn't really allow this. We live in a culture where the spirit of the age communicates to us that if your circumstances aren't such, you can't have joy. If you don't have enough resources and whatever those resources are, you don't get joy. If you don't have enough cultural power, no joy for you, right? If your life isn't exactly like you'd prefer it, joy for you is is off the table. And all that's left is despair or anger or discouragement or a deadly seriousness about all things because all things are very important and serious. Or, on the other side, not serious about anything because nothing matters. 
I think the gospel opens a way for us to look at our lives honestly, honestly, and say, you know what? I see that. I don't like it. It's not good. I lament it, and I want it to change desperately. And I have an indestructible joy that cannot fail, fade, or pass away at the same time. And that's where real life is. We're not talking about a happiness that floats above all this stuff, but stuff that, uh, a joy that sees it as it is and is more deeply rooted than it and grows up through it, no matter how heavy it is. What we see in the scripture is that joy is cultivated through what we might call spiritual sight. And again, normally in the New City community, we'd pick one passage and just motor through it. We do what's called expositional preaching. In this series, it's more topical. And if you open your insert, you're like, holy cow, are we going through all those texts? Well, the answer is yes, but quicker, okay? Um, so... Taylor and I basically don't know how to preach anything but just like preaching through the scriptures. So we're just adding a bunch of scriptures in. But trying not to make the sermons an hour and a half long, okay? Joy in every other aspect in your life of Christ's character is produced this way. This is it, okay? 2 Corinthians 3, verses 18 through 4, 6. It begins this way. When one turns to the Lord... The veil is removed. Now in context, that's the veil of living by the Jewish law. We can expand that out to living by any kind of law. That could be the veil of living by the law of, of uh, self-performance or your own opinion of yourself or whatever. Living by performance in some way. This is a veil that it makes it impossible for us to see the gospel. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That used to be on the front of the Indianapolis Star for whatever reason. I have no idea why. It has nothing to do with Indianapolis Star. And I don't think the star was talking about the gospel. Verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he's talking to Christians here, those who have the spirit. If you're in Christ, this is talking to you. And what he's saying is this is how the spirit works in your life and changes you into the image of Jesus. It's, you're changed into the image of Jesus through uh, beholding. Beholding. Looking at Jesus. Now immediately you might say, wait, that's... Then I'm, that's off the table for me. I cannot see Jesus. Can't physically lay eyes on Jesus. I guess this was just for people back then in Corinth, right? Wrong. The people in Corinth were decades removed from Jesus' ministry and hundreds of miles away. They didn't see Jesus either. He's not talking about physical sight. Uh, he is talking about what the New Testament calls spiritual sight or the eyes of the heart. This is a spiritual, it's like a sixth sense gifted to us by the Holy Spirit that a person without the Spirit does not have and a sense they cannot use because they do not have it. It is spiritual sight. It involves, it includes belief. That is believing that Christ is Savior, that he is my Savior. That's part of it. It also involves thinking about him, meditating on him, worshiping 
giving thanks, intentionally relating all the strands of our life to the gospel, submitting to him, treating him as Lord and the greatest treasure that we have because he is. This is in the daily things like prayer and Bible meditation. It's in the weekly rhythms like coming and doing what you're now, gathering for worship and singing and hearing the word proclaimed and tasting the word in the table. Uh, it's why we, we make such a big deal about Sabbath and rest for us. We've got to build these things into our life. This is, that's, and using our imagination, this is all what's comprehended in this beholding. So and we'll get to a little bit more of this in a second. But if you're in Christ, you have a sense. You don't have five senses, you have six. And your sixth sense is the ability to behold the glory of Christ. It is a spiritually gifted sense to you. And we'll see this in a second. Now, it's not complete. The, uh, the New American Standard Translation, this is the ESV, says, uh, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, because that phrase, that word for beholding meant originally used for beholding as in a mirror, not like, it's not like Roger looks in the mirror and says, the glory of the Lord right here. That's not what this is talking about, nor do you, by the way. Um, a mirror is in that day were out of, made out of polished brass. They weren't clear. So it means beholding indirectly or with uh, a haze or cloudiness, not completely, but really. So you, the way you beheld in a mirror was you really saw something, but it wasn't as crystal clear as it actually is. But you were seeing something real, just not complete. So this is an acknowledgement that in this life, we will behold Christ with this sixth sense, but even so, it will be incomplete because we are frail, and in the next chapter, we will behold him clearly and fully, completely, not as in a mirror. Uh, so it's an incomplete but a real beholding, and we are changed gradually by degrees. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another into the same image. What's that? That's the image of Jesus. So let's step back. Christian, as you behold Jesus over and over and over again, what's happening in your life is that you are becoming more like Christ in your life. Slowly, maybe, by degrees. You know, degrees, it doesn't have to be a lot of degrees. It just says degrees, right? A little bit, maybe. So that maybe, maybe 30 years ago, maybe, no, for me, like, I am more, maybe, I hope, by God's grace, more of a Jesus-filled Roger Williams than I was 30 years ago. And maybe it's just two degrees, but that's plural, right? That's degrees. And maybe in 30 years, I will be um, even, by God's grace, a more Jesus-filled Roger Williams than I am now. That's what I want to be concerned about. That's what I want you to be concerned about. Not comparing yourself to me or me to you or your neighbor or your spouse or friend or whatever, but like, are you growing by degrees? If not, what do we do? Ah, oh, we just behold Jesus. That's the mechanism the Spirit uses to grow us into Christ-likeness in our life. There is a simplicity to this. I mean, we're just talking about looking at Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul says, we kind of have a simple ministry. So he's kind of like telling the secret of gospel ministry. Um, 
We don't have to use deceptive tactics. Verse, uh, chapter four, verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to par- practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He's saying, look, we're gonna, this is simple. We're gonna present things as it is. We're not trying to make it palatable to the spirit of the age. Now, there's a tricky thing when you're communicating the gospel, whether it's in this context, preaching, or over the back fence with your neighbor, or a coffee with a friend. We are trying to make it understandable, that's right, but not palatable to the spirit of the age. And if you try to make this acceptable to the spirit of the age, you lose it. It's not acceptable. And then what... It just depends on where you are and when you are and what way it's not acceptable. You know, I know we walk around with the idea that if we were just kinder, if we were just nice, everybody would like us. There was nobody kinder than Christ, and he was crucified. Right? So, uh, we're, so we want to make this, we want to make it understandable, but let's just give up on making it palatable. It's not going to be palatable. Let's move on, right? And so... Um, The, the message is very simple in some ways. Christ is treasure above all. I'm not treasure above all. You're not the treasure above all. Our happiness is not the treasure above all. Uh, the country you happen to be a, a member of or the political party you happen to like is not the treasure above all. Our finance is not the treasure above all. Our health is not the treasure above all. Our perfect relationships are not the treasure above all. Jesus is the treasure above all. And if he's the treasure overall, nothing else is treasure over him, right? We live in a world that doesn't like that because says, no, this is treasure, this is treasure, this is treasure. The simple message of the gospel is all of that is foolish, there is one treasure, it's Jesus. Now, sometimes this is veiled to people, and if it's veiled to them, Paul points out here, this is a spiritual issue, not a not making the message palatable enough issue. Verse three, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God of this world is either, or both, right? Satan and or working with the power of this world, the idolatry, all the mix of this world, that says, no, I am treasure, something else is treasure, that blinds people's minds to the treasure of Jesus. Verse five. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6. It's important you know that because I put it in bold. Um, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What's this mean? If you, friend, consider Jesus to be glorious... If when you think of him, consider him, I'm not saying it's perfect, but like this comes on your radar at all. (laughs) Boy, he is glorious. He actually is the treasure above all treasures, which when I see it clearly, I would give everything to receive. When I see it clearly, he is the treasure in value over everything else in my life, including my life, including my death. Uh, 
if you think of Jesus like that, it is because of this reason and this reason only. The Holy Spirit of the living God shone in our hearts to give us the light to see that. We were darkened, light came in, and we said, whoa, we see. How do I know that? That's exactly what verse six says. Now, I will say, if you do not understand Jesus this way, if you do not behold him as treasure, I'm not saying if you don't do that 100% of the time. I'm just like, if this never appears on your radar, if your thought is like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that Christianity is true, but this whole thing about Jesus being treasure, yeah, I mean, I could take that or leave it. I have some bad news and good news. Or maybe it's just all good news. Here's the good news. If, that's, if you don't conceive of Jesus as treasure and never do, the good news is this, friend. You are not a Christian. And that's good news because the other part of the good news is there's far more of Jesus to offer than you're currently grasping. There's far more of him to see and enjoy, far more that he's willing to give than you're currently willing to receive. He offers himself to you. And the call is come to him, come to him. Confess that you've been treasuring other things, probably your own comfort in lots of ways. Lay that down and say, Jesus, open my eyes to the true treasure you are. I've been being my own savior this whole time and a self-imposed veil has been laying over my eyes. I ask you to take it away. I want you, I want to see you. He answers that, of course, every time. What if you do see him? What does this passage teach us? Keep looking, (laughs) keep beholding, keep delighting. Why? This is how we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. It's also, frankly, how rock-solid faith is formed. I mean, we we don't have to go very far in church history or around the world to think of our brothers and sisters in the faith who have been persecuted for following Jesus. Probably some of you just prayed for them in the prayer time before the sermon. Those... Our family, who has lost everything to follow Jesus and kind of a joy because they kept the greatest treasure in Christ. It's wonderful to read Christian biography because you see men and women down through the ages who even on their way to execution for the sake of Christ would sing. That kind of faith is not generated by saying, you know, I'm 53% convinced that Christianity is true. It's only generated by tasting and seeing that Jesus is good and the glory of God shines in his face and saying he is the greatest treasure above all things and I'll sacrifice everything else because I have him. When we see that, when we see that, we begin to be changed. Now, we probably will not face that in our life, but we still have access to that same source that creates that kind of indestructible joy in us. And that's how we're changed. We are changed through cultivating spiritual sight and beholding him. Now, when we behold, what do we see? We see a Jesus who is marked himself by indestructible joy. In Luke 10, the context is Jesus has called together 72 of his early followers, sent them out with the message of the gospel of the kingdom. They go out preaching the cities and villages and people come to believe it and they do wondrous, they're given powers to do miraculous things for that moment. Verse 17 of Luke 10, the 72 who returned with joy were saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, which is an elevated way. 
that Jesus was saying, as the gospel went out, Satan's power was dwindling. I saw his authority coming down. Verse 19, behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now, obviously that's a temporary statement because many of these people were killed for their faith later. Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, he's not saying don't be happy about this. It's a good thing. The gospel's going out. Satan's power is dwindling. It's a good thing. He's not saying don't take any joy in it. Just don't make it the source of your joy. Comparatively, it's not the same thing. There's a difference. Like last week I said, I would both say that I love an Americano and I love my wife. Those are two equally valid statements in English, but don't mean nearly the same thing. Right? So this is what Jesus is saying. Don't take joy in this, but take joy in that. And he gives a warning. Don't treat this like, hey, I've got authority over demons as a source of joy. Why? It's temporary. It's temporary. That would not always be the case. The work of the Spirit, he works one way here, one way there. There's flurries of his work in parts of the world and times and changes, right? So Jesus is giving them a helpful advice. Don't attach your joy to something that's temporary and, and fluctuates. When it's a based on your apparent success and failure. Rather, rejoice in something that is permanent, outside of us, and accomplished for us by another person. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. This means your name is written in the book of life as Revelation talks about. If you're in Christ, if you say Jesus is my treasure, here's reality. Your name has been written in God's book in indelible ink by his own hand. And nobody has authority over that book but him. That's the picture. Oh, that also means that you get to be a son or daughter of God forever. That's part of the reason Chesterton says, this is the gigantic secret of the Christian life. Are you kidding me? I'm completely secure forever and God is my father and he loves me and knows everything and wants my best, only best all the time. That's remarkable. Now you might say, yeah, 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 I know all that, right? I know I'm supposed to rejoice my name's written in heaven. Um, I get that. Um, and I just want to say, wait a second. This is the problem with being in church for a long time. We forget something. That the Jesus who said this died to say it. God took on flesh and was killed. Suffered the pains of hell. So my name could be written in heaven. So I get everything the Son of God gets. And the same for you. This means that no cross circumstance or hard providence can disconnect us from that. I'm not denying the difficulty of things in our life. Some of you are in deep difficulty. Some of you have been through difficulty. I get that. You live long enough, you, you've experienced this. It does mean that none of those things can disconnect us from that root of joy that is in Jesus. It can't happen. We, and we maybe grow blind to it, but it can't happen. 
And it means when our experience is that circumstances have crowded out this root of joy, the good news is, is not that the circumstances are too bad. Because what if they never change? What if they just keep getting worse? Sometimes it does. Sometimes those circumstances get bad and then they get worse and worse and worse and worse and then we die. The good news is we've just lost sight of something that's deeper and better in the midst of very hard circumstances. That our names are written in heaven with indelible ink by God's own hand at the cost of the life of Jesus. Verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Rejoice here. That's actually another and more intense word for joy. Uh, New Testament scholar Leon Morris, who was by no means given to overstatement, says it's inward joy that leaps outwardly. It's almost like you can see Jesus' physical expression of this joy. He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Uh, that people were being saved, yes. That God's people were being used, yes. But at the end of there, he's rejoicing in the fact that God's will is being done on earth. Namely here that this is being revealed to the humble. It's God's will. God's will is unchanging and perfect. So what we're saying here is that if our joy is rooted in something that's deeper and permanent than the unchanging temporary circumstances, it just doesn't change. Amidst all the chaos and junk in our life, or more than good things. I went, yesterday was great. We went to the Irvington Fall Festival, and uh, a daughter of this congregation, Liz Moss, and her band, uh, Scarecrow, from Belmont University was playing. There's three other... uh, Three women, uh, the third wasn't there, but it was Liz and two others. And you know what? They were amazing. They were really great. I was just like, go find them on Spotify. They sound fantastic. Some of you were there. And people clapped and it was great. I'm sure they went home thinking, that was awesome. They probably gave each other high fives the way. It was great. It was great. And then that afternoon, I went to a soccer game. Uh, Jordan Wedges plays for Cathedral. And uh, last week, Cathedral played and beat Carmel. And yesterday, they played Noblesville in soccer. So here's the deal. Noblesville, Carmel, and Cathedral, according to Max Preps, were the three top soccer teams. Not in the state, in the nation. You know that? Who knew Indiana soccer was so good? Max Preps does. Number one, number two, number three. Last week, Cathedral, who was number three, beat the number two team in the nation, Carmel. So yesterday, they played for the state championship against the number one team in the nation as the number two team in the nation. Didn't quite go as we hoped it would go. However, this is really high-level soccer. (laughs) Like, I've seen a lot of soccer. This is really good. (laughs) These are high-level players. And you got people there chanting. You got student sections yelling at each other. It's like the whole thing. All because of these teenagers on the field playing. That's pretty heady stuff. Even in, even in defeat, they should feel good. They played well. Jordan played great, of course. It was great, okay? Here's the deal. One day, there is no more crowd. One day, the voice fails. All those good things go away. They are all good but temporary. We cannot afford to build our life on good but temporary things. Those are, those are avenues through which some joy might come, but they're not the source. There's a source that's deep and permanent, and if you're in Christ, you're, the deep root of your life is already there. 
Jesus delights to tell us that. He delights, it's Psalm 40, which is originally on the lips of David, but we get to Hebrews, realize it's Jesus speaking through David. He says, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And in case we have a question of how deeply Jesus values this joy, consider Hebrews 12. You're in this passage, by the way. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to, beholding Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's Jesus. He endures the cross. You know the pain of it. He despises the shame. He's mocked, crucified naked, spit on, whipped, beaten, a laughingstock. Takes our sin upon his shoulders, feels the weight of hell, why? He's motivated by joy. The joy set before him. What is on the other side of this cross? What is that vista of joy that opens up for Jesus to see, for him to behold as he's on the cross? It's us. He endures the cross. He despises the shame to rescue a people for himself. And I want you to see that he did it with joy. With joy. And when we begin to see Jesus' delight in our rescue, it begins to change us. It begins to make us a little bit more free. That this Jesus who delighted to rescue us and who now is ascended to the throne and reigns is enthroned in glory, controls all things, moves all things in the direction of his will. Will he do us harm now? He will not. He will not. Even though difficulties may come, he will do us good and not harm. Finally, we see that Jesus' joy takes root in, through, and despite our circumstances. I'm gonna skip the John 15 passage. Let's look at 1 Peter 1. We, we read part of this for our statement of faith. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Okay, here it is. These guys were struggling. This church in Rome was struggling in the Roman Empire. They, they were under the gun. In this, you rejoice. Though for now, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
He says, sometimes it is necessary for trials to come. And we would object. Like, I don't think it's necessary. Who is this necessary to? Right? The Lord. And it's necessary for us. We need to see that the faith that we have is genuine. The way we see that is being faced with, is this my treasure or is Christ my treasure? And we say, oh, Christ is my treasure. That becomes even more real to us over and over again. Verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Now, Peter is using see in a different way. He means like physically see him. Uh, But then he kind of says the same thing as Paul. You have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's working a pressure in us of joy. And each time we taste joy, that joy in this life, it is a hyperlink to the coming fullness of joy that's rushing up to meet us when Christ returns and everything is restored. Every time we taste that joy now, and we're gonna taste that in the table in just a moment, we, we anticipate the fullness that's to come. When my Indiana Foundation specialist guy finally fixed that slab and handed me the bill, and I ran my credit card, and I said, man, I'm so glad to have this done. I've been thinking about doing it for a long time. He said these uncomforting words, oh, you'll probably have to do this again. <laughs> like, what? what do you mean? He said, those roots are still growing. Why? <laughs> they were attached to something that was alive. There is a good pressure in our life, in your life, in Christ, attached to something that is alive, that's creating a pressure that is lifting even the heaviest weight on our shoulders. And if you're in Christ, we're gonna come and invite you to come to the communion table now and taste, just that taste of that good pressure that points us on to the fullness of the coming joy that is ready for us when Christ appears. Let me pray and I'll invite you to the table.